Good morning. Today is Wednesday, September 7th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Let me ask you something. How do you listen to the show? Over the air on AM850? Online at kfuo.org? Or as a podcast? No matter how you connect, I'm glad you're here. Settle in, get ready to open your Bible. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the good folks over at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. I want you to go to their website, lhfmissions.org, to learn more about how they serve God's church. Now, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or maybe you just want to say hello to me, or you want me to pass a message on to our guest, email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, last time we gathered, we heard St. Paul toward the end of chapter 15 urge the saints to pray for his deliverance from the unbelievers so that his mission of collecting for the saints in Jerusalem could be fruitful. Today, we've come to the very last chapter of Romans, chapter 16. Here, Paul gives his personal greetings to the saints in Rome and a final bit of instruction before he closes out his letter. To help us finish the Apostles' letter, I'm pleased to welcome to the show a new guest, the Reverend James Hopkins, First Lutheran Church in Boston, Massachusetts is where he serves. He's also a chaplain in the U.S. Navy Reserves. Pastor Hopkins, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you, Pastor Boo, for inviting me. Good to be here. Pastor Hopkins and I served in the same circuit, uh, pardon me, no, the same district, not too long ago in the New England district. I was there a few years ago. Uh, Pastor Hopkins, for the listeners who haven't heard you on the radio before, and actually for me too, just to kind of catch up and see how things have been going, share with us what God is doing through your ministry and through the saints there in Boston. Boston's got to be an exciting place to be in ministry. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I'm really thrilled uh, to be here in the New England district in Boston specifically. I was first called to New England district uh, seven years ago or so, right out of seminary. And I did my first four years in a wonderful congregation on the South Shore, so south of Boston, called Lutheran Church of the Way. And it was just really wonderful people who helped me learn to be a pastor. And then three years ago, uh, the summer right before uh, the pandemic began, I arrived as the pastor of the First Lutheran Church of Boston, which if it says anything about what a joy it is to be in ministry here and in, in a very exciting place that uh, you know, has, I think, a lot of uh, biblical parallels. I mean, you'd really compare it to something like Ephesus, for example. Rome might be a little bit much, but I'll settle for Ephesus. Um, the last two pastors before me, uh, the senior pastors anyway, uh, each stayed for, see, Pastor Rooning stayed for 30 years, Pastor Dutzman for 25 or 26, both of them retired here, and which is a great thing for the health of a congregation. And I owe much to these uh, men who, who came before. So yeah, it's a very fruitful place. Boston is a very exciting town. It is really uh, the educational center of the world. So lots and lots of colleges, university uh, students left and right. It's a, a rather pluralistic kind of place. So 
Uh, my daily encounters will include people from lots of different uh, religious backgrounds or no religious background. Uh, it's a delight being located conveniently downtown that people can actually just stop by and knock on the door and have a conversation. And that really does happen. So I think I'm getting an outsized share of uh, adult converts here is a joy for the congregation to experience uh, from Islam, from uh, Hinduism, from atheism, just three conversions we've had recently, even in the pandemic. So that's really exciting. It's a wonderful context to preach in. And to that end, uh, especially towards our college students, grad students, and young professionals, we have a thriving young adult ministry. I'm happy to say that we have uh, successfully called uh, the Reverend Miguel Barcelos uh, to be the director of our young adult ministry, but chiefly really my, my associate pastor. And that'll be a program that he, he's running. And it's hard to really call that something just like, oh, it's a campus ministry, like a traditional town and gown, because we are just so outnumbered by the, and the ability to have a consistent presence in any one place. So we really need Pastor Barcelos to help mobilize and keep in touch with and stay connected to the, uh, the students, grad students, and, and young professionals here uh, that composite our young adult ministry and kind of use them as, well, in the military, we use the term force multiplier, but a way to kind of be everywhere at all times because Pastor Barcelos is an outstanding uh, man and pastor, but he will not be able to be everywhere at once. So that's a really exciting thing. Uh, also, we have a thriving music ministry here. Um, our cantor, uh, called Cantor Dr. Jonathan Wessler, uh, I think has got to be one of the greatest organists in the Synod, and he uh, runs an outstanding program. Upcoming soon is the International uh, Bach Competition, uh, where First Lutheran is featured on the bookends of that as we host you know, the, the best organists really in the world. Uh, at some of the best organs in the world here in Boston. And uh, yeah, Dr. Wessler is responsible for much of the planning, administration, and execution of that. So that's, and, and he really provides just a tremendous uh, gift to, to our liturgy on Sundays as we ornament the liturgy with the, the best of, of music that's really been brought into the Lutheran tradition for the, over these last centuries. Well, it's such a, such a blessing to hear all the amazing things that God is doing through your congregation. Some of that, of course, being a benefit of being located in Boston, a, a thriving metropolis. And the fact that it's First Lutheran Church, I think that reveals a little bit about its history. It's the oldest Lutheran congregation in New England, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, this congregation formed in 1839, so it predates the Synod. And I'm probably going to get my nomenclatures or something wrong, but we're having some issues right now uh, dealing with the city because we're trying to come up with certain historical documents. But part of our founding exists as, a, as an act of the legislature in Massachusetts. So we actually lack certain documents that we're, I mean, it'll, it'll all work out. We have uh, capable people uh, seeing to it, but it's, it's one of the funny things that happens when you're so old and, uh, and, and people are asking you for your papers, you know. Yeah, 1839, uh, we were uh, Zion Kirk and kept to that name until I believe we became the first Lutheran Church of Boston, so named before we came to our present address. So this is our third building in Boston. We moved in here in, honestly, 1959 or 1960. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful place for the music, especially. I, I'm just talking here 
architecturally. Uh, I compare it in some ways to Kramer Chapel, although it's a different shape. Uh, Kramer Chapel has that, it, you know, for those in the know, that triangular element, but it's a mid-century modern construction by a uh, architect from MIT named Pietro Belushi. Uh, for our listeners, by the way, Kramer Chapel is the chapel at the seminary in Fort Wayne, Concordia Theological Seminary. Yeah, thank you very much for the explanation. I tell you, folks, you know, I believe we're in good hands here with Pastor Hopkins today as we wrap up St. Paul's letter to Rome. Brother, um, I know that if I kept pressing, I could keep hearing all the great things that are going on, but let's dig in. But before we do, would you mind beginning our time with prayer? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have given us your personal greetings in Jesus Christ as you have sent him to be our Prince of Peace and establish peace between you and mankind. So also let us receive the blessings of those whom you send as your own good tidings of grace and goodwill towards us, which are in Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll be reading today from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible, chapter 16, verses 1 through verse 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kenshari, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Philagon, Hermes, Patrobus and Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So that's the text, brother, and lots of difficult names to pronounce. But in this first section, boy, we have all of these different names, but we don't hear a lot about these names in scripture, these, for the most part, these aren't the familiar disciples or certainly not the apostles that are scattered throughout scripture. It kind of reminds us that this really was a letter from Paul to, to real people living in Rome with, with real complicated and vivid lives just like ours. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we forget that personal touch, the reality that, yeah, these people were living and breathing at a time when Christianity was growing by God's grace. So take us into this, brother. You know, if you have to pull from what Paul has already said, but give us an idea of what Paul is doing here with these personal greetings. 
Yes. It's actually why I started with the prayer formed as it was. And that is these genuine, sincere, personal greetings, which are never completely or exclusively personal, but really motivated and energized by the love that he has for them in Christ. And these, these names, you mentioned all the, all the names and they're difficult to pronounce. And we actually have a lot of that here in this congregation. People are coming from all over the world and I'm looking at them and I know their name and I know I'm going to say it wrongly. They're probably used to that by now. And my point is that all of these people, while we may have trouble pronouncing their names, though we ought to do so the one way you can pronounce a name that you're unsure of, and that is with right, confidence, right. Uh, they're all known to Jesus. And that's, I think, a big point that's being made is that not that, hey, these people are so important to me, particularly though they are, but rather you're receiving these people uh, because Jesus knows, not just because they have my own stamp on them. And that says something about how we ought to be receiving others. Do we know anything about some of these people? I mean, for instance, Phoebe uh, a servant of the church, uh, Phoebe's mentioned first. I, I've heard that it sounds like you know she's a deaconess of the church. She's faithful in this place. Maybe she's from a wealthy family. Um, what do we know about Phoebe, if anything? Uh, you're correct about the title given there, uh, diakonos, um, just describing a woman in a role of service. Uh, it's possible uh, that Phoebe is the one delivering this letter, right? And, you know, he's saying that, uh, of course, she has been of service and that she has been a patron. Certainly, this does have the, the reign of, of financial support for the church as somebody who's giving and living faithfully. It does speak, however, to the, the view that Paul had toward women which I think is often misconstrued. People seem, and people who are against some of God's clear teachings about the role of women in the church, tend to lay their negativity on the shoulders of Paul as if he was a disliker of women or, or thought low, lowly of them. But here we have him commending this sister, calling her a deaconess, a servant of the church, and sending with her this extremely important letter and message uh, I, I think this speaks, maybe I'm overstating it, but I think this speaks to how Paul is, through God's inspired word, elevating uh, women to the, the right service in the church. That's right. Uh, I think that much can be made of the commendation of Phoebe as a servant. And also, you know, there's some other names in this list as well, uh, particularly uh, Junia, Junius, like this in verse seven, this idea that she's a female apostle. And so we should have uh, women as serving as pastors or something like that. And I think the reason to make much out of this, uh, these names and, you know, some of the words attached to them nearby is to try to make it unclear. Uh, but that's really poor hermeneutics, poor interpretive style. Uh, what we do is we take what is clear. In scripture, such as when Paul distinguishes between the roles of men and women, if you're thinking First Corinthians 14, Ephesians 5, Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, and we use that to illuminate what might be unclear. So you, you could reasonably, if you're only reading this last bit of Roman, begin to speculate about the role of women in the church. 
You know, I brought it up in terms of the fact that, you know, I don't believe that Paul is a hater and oppressor of women. And I think Phoebe being put in this role is very appropriate. We see in here that Paul is trusting her with this important message. But you're absolutely right that we can't go so far as to say that, you know, these these unclear things we're going to use as a hinge point to build on top of them this entire theology that Paul has not actually stated, that we must have our consciences dictated by what is clear in the scripture. So yeah, I think there's a happy medium here. We certainly, I want to see Paul as someone who appreciates women just as Christ appreciates them, and that is as fellow saints and those who are made in the image of God and recipients of salvation. And uh, certainly have different vocations in the church for men. Certainly, and and I also want to add uh, that, especially when it, especially with Phoebe, but also to the many other names in the list. One thing I think about here at the end of sixteen, in terms of pastoral application, in that has corollary in modern practice, is that of a bishop's letter. So I'm sure you're familiar with this, Pastor Boo. Is something we'll often do is when one of our people travel. You know, I have one member who, well, I have several members who are traveling frequently all over the country, sometimes other places in the world. And I work to find congregations that they're going to be serving with. Usually these people are very astute and pious and they're doing it themselves. But I will write them a letter to provide to the local pastor, commending that member of my congregation to them and asking that he receive them at the altar as somebody who is approved by the Lord, who shares their confession of faith. So I think I'm not saying that's everything that's happening here at the end of 16, but I think it's a dimension of it. Oh, I definitely can see that, you know, uh, greet this person, my beloved, greet this person who is in the Lord, greet this person approved in Christ. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I don't think I've ever looked at it that way. It used to be a lot more common, even in our tradition, to have these letters when anybody would travel. And then it became then just cards, little membership cards, or little cards signed by your pastor that you would take from place to place. And yeah, I think that service has fallen into disuse for a variety of reasons, but I think it definitely should be something that we maybe reignite because it emphasizes the unity that we have in the, in the church while at the same time, you know, shows that pastors and their people have a unique relationship and pastors are concerned about those who come to their altars that they've been they've been trained if we don't know you at all it would be nice to have that assurance as someone who has to stand before the lord and give an account that you know this person is under the tutelage of a fellow pastor somewhere yeah and and as a pastor like you said earlier in a, in a busy city and especially in the summertime a very mm. touristy city I'll tell you what, I would really appreciate it. Any pastor listening, if you're sending your person to Boston, you are saving uh, a lot of us a good deal of, of, uh, of time. If you would write yeah. such a letter, I will accept an email or a text. <laughs> Plus, it makes it a lot less awkward, right? Very much so. So I, I do want to bring up, and I'm sure you have, perhaps you have other things that you want to add about this, but, but verse 16, before we kind of move on to anything else, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now in 1 Corinthians, he says, all the brothers send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians, he says the same thing, greet one another with a holy kiss. He says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. Peter says it, greet one another with the kiss of love. Uh, brother, what is the holy kiss 
And why don't we do that today? Right. I think it's taken on a little bit of a different form. The holy kiss here, uh, it looks like is what we would today call kind of the passing of the peace. A, so you could identify that it, this is something that's occurring uh, within the liturgy or at least next to the liturgy as a, an expression outwardly of the, the bond of love and fellowship that Christians have with one another. So for those who are wanting the passing of the peace to come back in their congregations, let's say it was suspended for uh, COVID reasons, um, one of the biblical options is the holy kiss. Is that something you recommend to folks? (laughs) (laughs) I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. I wonder like how culturally conditioned this might be. In the American individualistic culture, even if this is something we felt was you know, God pleasing that we actually, you know, kissed one another out of love and faith. I I think it would be very hard to implement, but you do see in uh, other cultures in the Middle East, uh, you know, these other types of cultures where uh, either even like in India, men would hold hands that aren't, um, it it has no romantic connotation at all. So it it definitely is a cultural thing that this idea of greeting, you think of the European kind of kiss on the cheeks or uh, you know, things you might experience in Italy or Spain and all these other places. And I don't know, I'm sure someone will write in and say, well, no, technically, but no, you get what I'm trying to say, you know, in other cultures, you see this kind of thing happening. So I agree with you, pastor. I think this is culturally different no matter where you are, but at the core of it is this idea that you are unified, greet one another with a holy kiss. That is, you know, be unified in the faith with one another. And then I like this, all the churches of Christ greet you. It's kind of like a kisses, holy kisses from all the other churches. Paul is emphasizing the <laughs> fact that, you know, we are family. You know, you wouldn't think twice about kissing your grandmother on the cheek, but maybe not so much, you know, Elder John in the back of the church. You know, it's funny. We 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 think about this and it gets a little interesting as you dialogue about what this would look like in a, just in a church on Sunday morning. But I'm trying to imagine what it looks like if I'm writing my pastoral letter for somebody to be received at the, at the altar elsewhere. And it just ends, you know, holy hugs and kisses. Pastor. Right. <laughs> I don't know how many people would be taking me seriously after that. Yeah, X, XOXO, but in the O's little crosses. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> well, maybe we would say shake the hands of those who greet you. I don't know. You know, it, it, I think that's what is fascinating about the Bible. And as I said before, with all of these names, you know, we don't know a lot about a lot of these people, but at the same time, these are real people. And even these last, this little last verse before we go to the break, you know, verse 16, it's, it's reflecting a real culture in which Christianity was operating. So at no point is Paul saying that thus saith the Lord, you must greet one another with the holy kiss. Instead, what's behind these very real Holy Spirit inspired words is that when we encounter other Christians, we greet one another, we celebrate our unity, and that's what he's trying to pass on. I I definitely believe that that is the main point of what he's trying to get across. Certainly. Is there anything else you want to cover before we move on to the next section? Yeah, the first one is that you, know, you mentioned it's this list of names and uh, you know, oftentimes difficult names to pronounce. And it's easy to read past those or wonder about why the Holy Spirit inspires such a thing, right? And 
I think at least one of the reasons is similar to the reasons you find similar lists of names in genealogies in the Bible or when they are listing out the representatives of the tribes of Israel and who's present uh, to, to, to represent and who's getting out what portions of land and so on. And it's important for the Christian to remember that, uh, one, uh, all of you are known to God and two, that because these are not well-known people, because they are, uh, rather lost to history and you're not going to meet anybody who thinks about them. They're not Alexander the great, uh, that God is pleased to involve just the most ordinary people in, in, in the life of the church and in his kingdom, whether that is somebody who is well off and capable like Phoebe, whether it is, uh, you know, Ampliatus, which sounds like a slave's name, uh, depending on what commentary you read, uh, that these are in one and the same list, just as you're going to find some, uh, unsavory or what folks would consider unsavory people in the genealogy of Jesus, that God is pleased to involve all of us in his kingdom and in his work. So that's one thing. Uh, the second is that we get the idea that this list of names in this uh, final chapter is radically different from the rest of Romans because we know it's a very doctrinally dense book. I mean, Melanchthon, I think it was Melanchthon wrote what was considered the, really the landmark commentary on Romans. While it's not as doctrinally dense as the rest of the book, it is still instructive for us. It does still give us uh, even just these opening verses about the greetings instruction about, by way of example, about how we are to receive one another in Christ. I think that's beautifully put, though, when we consider the fact that these people are so-called lost to the annals of history, and yet they're remembered by God. They are on the mind of Christ as he dies on the cross, and if we ever think that our service to the world or service to the church is going unnoticed, um, I think we can remember these folks. We can remember them, and as you so aptly put, be encouraged that God remembers us. Well, this seems like a good time as any to take a pause. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return from our break, Pastor Hopkins and I will continue our discussion of the last chapter of Romans. That's chapter 16. We will see you on the other side. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church free of charge to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, 
And with me today is the Reverend James Hopkins, pastor of First Lutheran Church in Boston, Massachusetts, and also a chaplain in the U.S. Navy Reserves. Pastor, before the break, you know, we were digging into all these names and off the air, I told you, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to you know talk about a list of names, but the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to include this in his letter. There are practical reasons in terms of his letter coming to the church in Rome. There's practical reasons. He wants to greet them. He wants to build relationships with them because he's planning that visit. We talked a little bit about Phoebe and being a servant of the church, you know, was that something official? Was it less than official? It speaks to Paul's confidence in women, not his disdain for them, as some have claimed Paul to to have. But at the same time, should we read into that more than there is? No. Uh, Let's move on to the next section, and I'm going to read through verse 23. Again, this is from the ESV, beginning with verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. You know, this letter, as you noted earlier, is so full so rich with theological revelations from God, it's almost as if he could have written forever. And even in his greetings, you know, he's thinking, oh, I just, you know, now that I'm thinking about all these individuals at the church, I have to give you some, some, some more things. The Holy Spirit's laid on my heart. Uh, take us through that, brother. Yeah, so interestingly, uh, chapter 16, verse 17, in terms of the text we have before us today, this is the only verse from chapter 16 that's quoted in the Lutheran Confessions. And it's in the wow. preface to the Book of Concord, uh, that preface written by the electors, princes, deputies of the Holy Roman Empire in Germany. And they cite Romans sixteen seventeen as a reference when they note how much Satan has labored to stir up divisions combined with offenses and corrupt the purity of the heavenly doctrine. So that is to... I think, highlight or undergird and cause us to consider how seriously Paul thinks of false doctrine, how important it is to be on the lookout for it and avoid it. And the reason is because it's damaging. That's false doctrine uh, is just so corrosive to faith because doctrine, we sometimes think that doctrine exists in its own category or its doctrine is studied by a particular group of professors in a particular department, but doctrine is nothing other than this is what the word of God says. That's why it matters. It matters because the word of God matters. And it's, it's, a uh, it matters enough to just bring it up seemingly out of nowhere in the midst of greetings as another reminder. Yeah. And such an important reminder because doctrine, you know, quotations, doctrine is at the core of everything we believe, teach, and confess about God. 
I believe it was at seminary they taught us uh, that, you know, everyone is a theologian. Anyone who thinks about God is a theologian. And in that regard, theology is something that everyone's thinking about all the time. Even if you don't believe you have an opinion on theology, it doesn't mean it's the right one, right? People have the right to be wrong. But how important it is for us as Christians who have been given clarity about the truth what, what theology uh, is supposed to be, what God has revealed through his scriptures. And Paul is sure to make one of the final words of his letter an appeal that we watch out. That, that word there from skopos, it means to like keep your eye on the goal, right? So keep your eye out for those who are causing divisions, right? They have a goal that's contrary to our goal. Those who are creating obstacles, contrary, something against the doctrine you've been taught, avoid them. But avoid them? That seems kind of strong, Pastor. Aren't we supposed to try to convince them? How does this look in the Christian church today? How does this look in the life of the Christian? What what does it actually feel and look like to be watching out for divisions and avoiding those people? It It just seems in itself contrary to what God wants us to do. Yeah. And if all I did was make sure I didn't cross paths or ever have conversation uh, with somebody who has been the subject or uh, speaker of false doctrine, uh, I would have a difficult time proclaiming the gospel to anybody. Uh, I think quite simply, without overreading the text, this is an admonition to protect the preaching office, uh, to hold everyone to the word of God as it has been given. And I think it's a, it comes at an important moment because he's just given this long list of all these people who are approved by the Lord and who ought to be received. And it, doesn't, it didn't matter whether they were men or women or rich or poor or slave or free or uh, Greeks or the, his fellow kinsmen, that is Jews. After that long, huge, expansive list of all these people, he says, but here's what you don't receive. You don't receive false doctrine. You don't receive uh, divisions uh, and the creation of obstacles in the church. And when that happens, uh, you actually, you do have to purge it. When you do get people who seek to divide and destroy one professor, and I I know he didn't mean this in any any unfavorable way, but he called it the idea of blessed reduction. When uh, sometimes uh, we don't try to separate the wheat from the chaff, in terms of digging things out, but sometimes the chaff shows itself. I mean, how often have people who are wanting to be disruptive to the church threatened to leave or threatened to go elsewhere because they're trying to drive a wedge between those who are faithful to the truth and those who, like themselves, who, as St. Paul says, serve their own appetites. Yeah, I've heard it said as some people are worth losing, and not losing in the terms of we want them to be punished forever, but in but in the idea that, you know, the church is supposed to be unified. And that doesn't mean that everyone has to agree all the time. It's important that we put ourselves under the authority of the scriptures and continue to grow in our faith and knowledge. But for those who are intentionally coming to divide Christians, Paul is very clear here to watch out for them and to avoid them. So what I hear you saying, brother, and I agree with it, is that this isn't about just avoiding everybody that disagrees with you. 
uh, even if that disagreement might lead to the occasional obstacle or divisions, this is about, as Paul says in 18, which really fills in who he's talking about, people who are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ. They are not, they're only serving their own appetites. They're smooth talkers. Their intent is to deceive the hearts of the naive. As you said, this is about the ministry office. And Paul is very, um, Paul has a lot of a, colorful ways to describe these kinds of people. In Philippians 3.19, speaking of the same type of people, he says, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. And in 2 Timothy, he says, they're treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So it's, it's fascinating how Paul is so passionate about theology and you would be too. If Jesus Christ himself appeared to you, called you to be an apostle, and told you to go and proclaim the truth. Moving on to verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you you grabbed onto this verse. So Paul does not think, Paul the great preacher, I mean, just go read Galatians. Paul does not think it. Paul, who is the great preacher of uh, the doctrine of justification, that we are saved by grace through faith, Paul does not consider it an injury to the doctrine of justification for him to rejoice over Christians for their obedience. Uh, you can compare it to chapter 12, verse 9. I could go there real quick. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality and so on. Uh, we should never, as Christians, think that encouraging is almost too weak of a word. Commending Christians, uh, positively admonishing to lives of obedience that we should never think that that is uh, something contrary to the word of God, because I mean, Paul's writing this letter to Christians. Well, even Jesus says, you know, in Matthew 10, he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I get that same kind of vibe from St. Paul here when he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, that our faith, the fruits of our faith, produce in us good works. And those good works, of course, serve our neighbor. We serve God by serving our neighbor. And to celebrate the, that obedience, there is a difference between being pious and insisting that um, pious living is the way to please God. The way I often will talk to confirmands about it, or sometimes I like to trick our adult uh, teach, uh, our adult classes too, and I'll say, you know, true or false, good works are required of the Christian. And all the good Lutherans will say, no, of course, they're not required. But obviously it's a trick question because the answer is good works are not required uh, in order to earn our salvation, but good works naturally, as St. James would say, flow from our faith, right? You know, faith without works is dead. And so there is this distinction that James makes, but Paul makes it too. And that is that obedience to God, which he has been speaking about at length throughout this entire letter, is something to be commended, but also something for us to seek out. You would want 
to live as God wants you to live as a child of God. So in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now that that sounds like messianic language, you know, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. I think of Jesus when I think of that. Yeah, I love I love this verse. I think there's a couple things to pull out of it. Uh, one place that didn't jump to my mind when I was preparing for this interview, but did when you just read it now, I'm reminded of the litany in the prayer of the church when we ask that God would beat down Satan under our feet. So on one level, we can read this as, you know, God is coming back. He is returning in judgment and the Satan who is now conquered will be finally put away. So that's sort of eschatological, but also even now in the life of the church and the proclamation of the gospel and living lives of obedience, living as lives as, as Christians in all these ways. I mean, the God of peace, yes, will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's what we ask for. Well, you're right. And, and the one who's doing the crushing is, of course, Christ. All of these divisions, even that Paul warns them about, all of those things, too, will be crushed. All of the oppressive actions of Rome that, that might interfere with the way that they want to believe, the constant threat of the Roman government wanting to come in and, and do away with Christians, and eventually they work even harder at it. Paul himself knows what it is like to be persecuted for your faith. All of these things are celebrated by Satan, and yet this very comforting verse, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, not because they're Christ, but because they are the embodiment of Christ's church. And the and the church, as you said, is, is victorious. You, you brought to, to mind that grand litany. Yeah, absolutely. The church is Christ's victory over Satan in this world. So moving on in verse 21, he mentions Timothy, right? Timothy greets you, Lucius and and Jason and Sassipater, uh, his kinsman, Tertius. He's, he's coming back to some names. These names fall at the end. They're not the same list of names that he's writing to. He begins with Phoebe, but now he's listing some other folks. Is this just customary for letters? Is there something more to it? Particularly, Timothy is a partner in ministry. Timothy was with Paul on his second uh, missionary journey. Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, I don't know more about them. That may just put them in the category of many of the other lists of names that people we don't know more about right away. Uh, and then that fun little insertion into the text from Tertius, Tertius, who wrote the letter, uh, greeting him in the Lord. He obviously is putting his skills to, as a scribe to work uh, for the sake of the church, as Paul dictates the letter to him, and doesn't just use the opportunity to save low for himself, but also to uh, give thanks to God and pass on greetings uh, in regards to Gaius, somebody else who is benefiting the church. I think about somebody who is hospitable to Christians, right? Who shows hospitality. It's an opportunity we have here at First Lutheran a lot. We have people coming through town and they're waiting to get, uh, find roommates for their apartment or their waiting to close in a house or whatever it is. And the hospitality that people in our congregation are eager to show to them, to, to host them. And they're not exactly the city treasure, right? But they are opening up their homes 
and their hearts to these fellow Christians. And I think that's a great example to follow that uh, we are reminded of here in verses 23. We just have a couple more verses left to read, and these are the final verses of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. We also call it the doxology, and our guest will explain why we call it that. But let's read it, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. St. Paul and his famous run-on sentences. When he, <laughs> The whole book is full of these run-on sentences, which I think are beautiful because in my mind's eye, now this is obviously not thus saith the Lord, this is what thinketh Phil, but in my mind's eye, I just picture him so moved by the Holy Spirit, so passionate for the gospel, so loving for those people he's writing, and maybe a little bit on the run half the time, except when he's in prison. I mean, this is just, it, it's just pouring out of his pen, or it's pouring out of the pen, the one he's dictating it to. But but Paul is just pouring out this message, and his scribe, I should say, is writing so furiously that there's no time for grammar. He just wants to get the message out. I don't know. Maybe that's a little of a bit of a romantic view of what's going on. But brother, uh, ground me by explaining to us, you know, why is the why are these verses so important, and, and what do they tell us about the overarching message of Paul's letter? And you know, he's wanting to leave them with these words. First off, you might not be far off with the idea of uh, something being written as it's being spoken. Different guys have different styles. I write my sermons out on paper exactly the way I would speak them. So my, my sermon manuscript is a bunch of one line, one line, one line, one line. I, I don't write in paragraphs for a sermon. Uh, and it might be, you know, that next line might be a comma. But the idea of a run on, I just, I know how I sound naturally. And I put it on the paper exactly that way, even if it looks a bit weird. Now, it's it's funny you say that because when I was doing my field work, you know, 12, 13, 13 14 years ago, my supervisor was the Reverend uh, Stuart Rethwich. And I would turn in my sermons and they were not written quite like you said, but written in such a way that if you read them and you weren't me, you would think, oh, I don't see how this really flows. And so he wrote me, he said, you know, I don't see how it flows when you send them to me, but it makes sense when you preach it. So I kind of understand what you're talking about. That's right. And with so many of the other letters, we know that they're being read out loud right. by the presbyter. So, uh, but anyway, I don't want to distract from the importance of verses 25 to 27. Uh, this is also in our lectionary systems, the only occurrence of any of Romans 16 and verses 25 to 27, you're going to get this if you're on the three-year lectionary. You're going to get this in year B on Advent 4. And I think that's perfectly timed because it's right, you know, you're right there on the edge of Christmas, right? You can, you can smell it. And this bit from the very end of Romans reminding us that the Old Testament 
was not complete in its revelation of the gospel in its fullness, that is in the incarnation, right? But is now complete, right? Th- what an appropriate message for the week of Christmas um, that the light of Christ and his incarnation and his life, death, and resurrection, that this shines completely, illuminates, and makes clear everything that happened before. This is why the the prophetic writings here in verse 26, that's a reference to the Old Testament. Because uh, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they now fully understand, they now understand the Old Testament. So these are the texts that the apostles would have preached on. I, on Christmas Eve, I, I feel like I always have to preach on Luke 2. And I, and I love to. But because Jesus... I can preach on anything in the Old Testament, even on Christmas. In fact, I think it might be even more powerful on occasion to remind people that the, the, the scriptures of the New Testament uh, was the what we call the Old Testament. You know, Paul's scriptures, you know, I don't know to what extent the church fully appreciated that scripture was being written and disseminated in their time. But when the New Testament writers appeal to the scriptures, they speak of what we would call the Old Testament. And their faith was based on Christ fulfilling what was uh, witnessed to by, you know, the secret kept for long ages, the the revelation of mystery, as Paul says here in these last verses. And yeah, so I appreciate what you're saying here, you know, to preach from the so-called Old Testament about the coming Christ should be fairly natural and just as efficacious as speaking of the nativity. That's exactly right. So we also, in these last verses, you know, doxology. When I think of the doxology, I think of the old 100. I think of singing the doxology. Uh, what is doxology? What, you know, what, what, what that's what the editors put in, in terms of their uh, description of these last couple verses. But as our own doxology to this program, maybe explain that, what that is a little bit. So uh, that term doxology, which when we hear it, yes, we think of uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow in the old 100th and so on. It comes from the Greek word doxa, uh, which we translate here as glory. And to to render doxology is, as Paul does here, is to place the glory where it belongs. And that is uh, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Well, brother, we only have just a few minutes left in our program. I'm going to give those last few minutes to you. Uh, Would you mind sharing with our listeners, and I ask all of our guests to do this, just a word of gospel, something that could benefit them, something that connects to what we learned today from God's holy word, maybe something they can share with their neighbors. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Paul is pleased to glorify God through Jesus Christ because of his life, death, and resurrection for sinners and the life that he pours out onto his church. And we have a beautiful example of sharing that love in the world as Paul remembers uh, these dear saints in Christ. Uh, He's not only remembering them on paper, right? But he is remembering them in his prayers uh, as he brings them before the throne of God as he has been loved 
as we have been loved in Jesus, uh, we are also called to pass that love onto our neighbor, to remember them, to bring them uh, to God's own altar, to remember them in prayer, their needs, whether they know him not or love him not, whether they are your brothers and sisters already in Christ, to remember and to see those people who are otherwise invisible and unmemorable, who are unloved, who are unseen, to bring them to God's throne in prayer and to commend them to Christ. Uh, is a beautiful work for the Christian. And that this, this symbol work, which we talk a lot about vocation in the Lutheran church and because the Bible talks about it and the specific things we're called to do, this is something universally Christians are called to do. And that is to pray and to remember the poor and remember uh, those saints of God, uh, to remember those who are in need, and and to care for them and to and to present their needs to god this this is glorifying to god and that is beautiful doxology i'd like to thank my guest this morning the reverend james hopkins senior pastor of first lutheran church in boston massachusetts and also a chaplain in the united states navy reserves pastor thank you for being on the show i hope you'll join us again Thank you very much. It was uh, my pleasure. Uh, Wonderful to be on the show, and I look forward to coming back. Excellent. And I'm also grateful to you, dear Christian, for listening to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow as we open another epistle of St. Paul, this time 1 Corinthians. This is a letter which is filled with the wisdom of God and so much practical application for the church today. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.